as we continue our worship of our great God now by studying his word and coming to listen to him. Would you take your Bibles, paper or screen, and turn or flip in them to Romans chapter 4. We're looking today at verses 9 through 17. Each Sunday, we want to obey God's command in 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul speaking to Timothy, but equally to us, both individually as well as a whole body. That we will be faithful each Sunday to do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Spurgeon's words are fitting here that the church does not determine what the Bible teaches. It is the Bible that determines what the church must teach. And in this season of our church life, we are diving ever deeper into understanding some of the core truths of Christianity. What sets it apart distinguishes it from others. We've been looking at the doctrine of sin and spent a few months in that because that's the first part of Romans. And then in the last few weeks have turned to God's defining of justification, which we're in the midst of and tied very intricately to that as the means by which we receive it faith. Not focusing so much right now in this season of our study on what we must do. That's coming later in Romans after we look more at what Christ has done. But focusing for now on what's crucial to know and to believe and to build our lives on, not just intellectually, but to the very core of our beings. We pray as Jesus prayed in the garden as he went to the cross, asking the Father, and so we now do as well, that he will sanctify us in the truth because his word, the scriptures, are truth. So Romans 4, we're right in the middle of it, kind of in the middle of a section that could run from about 321, and then it depends on how you uh, see the ending, either 510 or to the end of chapter 5 on just a boring title, Continuing Clarification on Justification by Faith Alone. But God has his servant, Paul, writing here, incessantly making and proving and reproving and circling back around that there is a single way for man to be justified and right with God and not condemned. MacArthur, in his strong ways, puts it this way, that he is continuing his assault of works righteousness, later speaking of it as the hellish damning deception of works-centered systems of religion that men create under Satan's inspiration, all of which seek to convince people that they can be made right with God and guaranteed a place in heaven by performing certain Rites, thank you, and ceremonies. The natural man instinctively believes that somehow he can make himself right with God by his own efforts. And if you feel, especially if you're not really into history and Abraham, and you're not really into long, well-developed logic and arguments and presentations, if you feel like this is a bit of an overkill, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a word for us on that. 
The apostle has put it clearly in chapter three, but then he puts it still more clearly here. He is taking no risks at all. Paul knew sin and he knew human nature and he knew very well that people tend to say, oh yes, I'm all right. I've got hold of that justification by faith doctrine. Let's go on now to sanctification. But Paul is not so sure of us. And he wants to make certain that we have really understood. And as we'll note today, that Jews and Gentiles in the early church really, really, really understood this to the core. It's critical that we have deep roots, sound roots, in this distinctive of Christianity, that we are justified before God, not by anything that we do, no matter how virtuous the effort, but by God's grace alone, which is given through faith alone, and it's in Jesus Christ alone. We can't be wrong on these things, even as we sang this morning, there is one gospel in which we must stand, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just a quick reminder from last week, uh, as we, so in case you weren't here or forget, uh, I won't reread the Martin Luther quote, but we looked at a number of quotes that just said how critical and important this is. So in all of this, uh, righteousness in justification that we're talking about. We're talking about a term, largely from the accounting world, somewhat from the legal world as well, in which there is a designating, declaring, pronouncing, regarding, considering. So it's a way of looking at someone. Um, and in this case, describing how God considers, counts, reckons, regards, that's justification, his righteousness to us through his son or maybe the most succinct packed wording, having the righteousness of God applied or credited to one's account before God and the unrighteousness of the sinner applied and put on Christ in the cross, in his death, in the blood. Today, as we work our way through the middle part of chapter four, I found John MacArthur's outline of this section most helpful I don't know if he comes up with all those nifty little wordings or if he's got 10 people working for him that do that. But uh, often very, very helpful. But his articulation of this, and I've added some thoughts toward the ends of these, but the core comes uh, from his uh, preaching through Romans, which he spent more time than we are. Abraham was not justified by or because of circumcision, and I'm adding, but by faith alone as the emphasis that's really where the rest of chapter 4 will go. Verses 13 to 15, that he wasn't justified by or through the law, but again emphasizing faith alone. And then verses 16 and 17, beginning to turn to what he was justified by and clarifying that that was grace and grace alone that comes simply through faith alone. So we'll note these as we go through and then kind of recap them at the end as well. Would you please follow along? I've put on the screen the headings that we just talked about, but again, the primary thing here is to hear the actual words of God. That is what we will focus on and then begin to unpack. Verse 9. Is this blessing, sorry to interrupt, it's referring to what we just saw repeated in verses 7 and 8 three times. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? basically for the Jews, or also for the Gentiles. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. 
How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Then some new thoughts. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And then a final set of thoughts that really will lead to the rest of the chapter. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Father, how thankful we are that you give us grace to learn more about grace. Thank you for this kindness, for this privilege that we do, that we have here. And we ask, Lord, and affirm, your word is truth, so please sanctify us in it and through it. Teach us, clarify, correct exhort, equip, and in every way complete us for your purposes through what we look at here in your precious and powerful word. Open our eyes that we may behold wonders in your truth, we ask in your name. Amen. So verses 9 through 12, we just categorized, and you can see or hear as we read through it over and over and over, the resounding theme of circumcision or not uncircumcised. Um, and just this seems to be driving home a final time here in Romans that this deeply ingrained way of separating people out, Jews and Gentiles particularly, or Jews and everyone else in the world, is now going to be addressed because it's so deeply ingrained. So we've already seen it twice. Let me just quickly remind you here. First of all, back toward the end of chapter 2, we saw these words. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outward, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. And then, as you think about the boasting passages, 
His praise is not from man for what he has done, but from God. And then at the end of chapter 3, Paul circled back one more time and just took a two-verse, three-verse sweep through this thought and just distinguished that God is the God of both Jews and Gentiles because he is one God. And so he justifies the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So this is not new territory, but for those of you who may be tired of the banging on the drum of this theme or thought, if we can go back to that slide with verse 9 on it. This is, when we get to verse 12, the last time that circumcision is mentioned in Romans until one very brief reference to it in chapter 15, which is like a year away, a good year. So, bear with us, bear with Paul. It may be different in application for us, but the insistence on this is still so valuable and true and helpful for us. So the blessing of the forgiveness of sins that we saw uh, last week in verses 7 and 8 is, the question is, and Paul again is using his Q&A style, is it only for the circumcised, only for Jews, or is it also for the uncircumcised or the Gentiles and the rest of the world? So many Jews were convinced that circumcision, the covenant, the law, the oracles of God, as we've noted in Romans, all gave them some kind of greater, deeper righteousness than the rest of the world had. As Robert Yarbrough puts it briefly, the notion that the uncircumcised could be blessed alongside or equally to the Jews was just almost unthinkable. Uh, many commentators here take a long time to show all kinds of other writings uh, from that same time period outside of the canon that just over and over and over stressed how critical and important circumcision was in this. So what Paul says at the end of verse 9, this repeating of a theme that was all the way back in 116 was in the latter part of chapter 3 uh, in verses 25 and 26, and now is coming out again, all of which are uh, re-quoting Genesis 15, 6, over and over and over, when we, speaking of the apostles, speaking of those in the gospel, speaking of those who have really understood it's not about the circumcision, it's about faith that's being counted by God, that's the idea of justification, declared, considered by God as incredibly righteousness. Verse 10 just simply begins to clarify, and it's about timing because timing here is going to be really important. How then was it counted to him, or when was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? Paul's setting, using this question to set it up. Not after, but before. Um, so Genesis 15 that we've noted uh, is when Abraham was declared righteous by God because of his faith. Genesis 17 is when uh, the sign and the seal of the circumcision were then given. And we know, piecing things together, that there was at least 14 years, perhaps upward of even 29. So just thinking of it in terms of my own life, a fourth of my life to about half of life, between when he believed and was considered righteous and when he was circumcised. So long before he was declared a Jew, he was declared justified by God, technically as a Gentile. 
Long before he was circumcised as a sign and a seal, he was already believing the gospel of God. And Paul just is going to reiterate that now. He received the sign, the the visible indicator of something great or significant, much like when you think of baptism for us, or the Lord's Supper and the bread and the cup for us. Those are signs. Those are visible ways that something spiritually big is being portrayed or conveyed. And then secondly, it's the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness, as a way of God just stamping authoritatively the genuine, legitimate righteousness is by faith and not through circumcision. Signs and seals are not salvific. We try to emphasize that when we take the Lord's Supper as well. But are visible indicators of, quoting Yarbrough, bro, God's claim on and expectations for his people. Or Ventura just puts it clearly and simply, circumcision did not confer righteousness to Abraham. That was already given to him through faith. It simply confirmed it. If you just, yeah. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything in terms of our standing before God. I just remind you, Paul did still consider circumcision important, still had Timothy circumcised in order to give him opportunity to minister to circumcised Jews. But he's saying here, for our justification, for our standing before God, neither of those counts for anything, only faith working through love. Because what matters to God is not a physical act or sign or seal or condition, but a heart of faith, trusting wholly in Christ and in God. Now an added perspective of why God did this in this order. So the purpose or God's purpose was to make Abraham the father of, and now he's going to note two distinct groups, what have been distinct groups. All who believe without being circumcised, so Gentiles, what Abraham was first, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And then verse 12, and second group, to make him the father of the circumcised, the Jews, what Abraham became. So Paul's trying to show here, he was both. He was an uncircumcised Gentile who had faith, and then he was a circumcised Jew who had faith. He's the father, the beginning, the uh, starting point, the head of the procession of a long, 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 long line, lineage of family of believers that follows all the way down to us as well. So it's hard for us to fully get the significance of this, but Stifler puts it bluntly and powerfully. Paul has turned the Jews' boast of their circumcision, of their way of knowing God through uh, the law. It is not the Gentile that must come to the Jews' circumcision for salvation. It's the Jew who must come to a Gentile faith, or a faith that originated in a Gentile, Abraham. Such faith as Abraham had long before he was circumcised. And then Paul wants to stress here, particularly to the Jews, who are not merely circumcised, who don't just have that external, physical 
identification, but who also walk, and this is really the key, that they walk in the footsteps of the faith, not just in the footsteps of the circumcision or the law, that they walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So in other words, faith is not just a one-time event, but a walk, a lifetime that we'll talk about, and it's not just a feeling or it's not just an action. It is a position in which one comes to cast himself fully and completely on God for justification as well as for everything else. Footsteps, Yarbrough notes, implies a life of ongoing and costly commitment not a one-and-done mental gesture. No way is Paul presenting an easy believism in which obedience to God and performance of good works are irrelevant. So just quick reminders. We'll note these more as we get further into Romans and talking about what it means, having been justified by faith, to then live by faith, walk by faith, to have it be an integral part of all of life, a full dependence on God, First and foremost for justification, but for everything else as well. And through all circumstances, taking God always at his word, at his promises that we'll see coming up, and knowing that he is good for all of them. So just to briefly summarize here, to try to drive home the significance of what Paul's saying here to this church in Rome. Hendrickson said, it's difficult to overestimate the significance with one stroke of the pen, the entire huge wall of separation between Jew and Gentile was raised to the ground. God doesn't save because someone is a Jew or a Gentile. Zero nationality bias. God doesn't save because someone takes a sign or a seal or doesn't. Those he saves... He saves only because of their faith, a faith that God must give and through which righteousness that is needed before God is granted and given and credited. Salvation is not because of works, rituals, ceremonies, or even obedience, or it's not salvation. Salvation is by faith. Verses 13 to 15 introduce a new thought And it's the first mention of the law since the end of chapter 3. So it was big in chapter 3 and back in chapter 2. And then it's been kind of quiet, and Paul is now going to bring back and circle back to use this as a second thing, that Abraham was not justified by the law. We noted this somewhat last week as well. And whether you think here of the promise in verse 13 that's introduced to us, meaning God's promises for all who believe the gospel or the promises to Abraham and to his offspring of a land, a son, a seed of nations, and of blessing. The promise here, introducing a new wrinkle, and for those of you who like to see the connections, promises in verse 13, 14, 16, and then we'll note it again the next time we're in Romans in verses 20 and 21. So this promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, which is a unique wording. We don't see a lot. Um, We see it more in terms of many nations, but I think it falls in that same meaning or significance, that Abraham would be not only the father of all the nations, 
but all of the world in the sense of all those who put their faith in God. Um, it's the fullest expression of the blessing that comes through the faith like Abraham had. And then Paul just notes, that did not come through the law. Promises don't come through the law. Rewards might for obedience, but promises come when it can't be done otherwise. So not through the law, but through, again, unique wording. We saw it last week, the righteousness of faith. Paul's pushing those things together to say that's how intricately connected they are. Let's make it one phrase, one term, one identifying way that righteousness only comes through faith. And then to contrast it, or the reason in verse 14 is that it's the adherents of the law who are, it's, it's, if it is to be the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then two things happen. Faith is null. It becomes worthless, unnecessary. Someone put it, you deprive it of its value of its eternal, beautiful, powerful value. So part of this is to say, if you think that adhering to the law in some way helps entitle you toward this great inheritance that comes through faith, you are going to render your faith, your believing, as null, as worthless, because you're adding works to it. And secondly, the promise is void, meaning it doesn't apply to people who are trying to meet God's level of righteousness by their own attempted obedience. It makes God's promises unnecessary and unuseful, ultimately rendering the promise of a Messiah that Abraham and all others after him were looking forward to that would make things right with God and declares it to be unnecessary. So James Boyce puts it succinctly, faith and law are opposites. There are ways that they can work together, but for, for the most part, it's, it's best for us here to see those are two different paths or roads. If a person is choosing one, he or she is inevitably rejecting the other. Impossible to be saved by both faith and works as it is to set out and go in two different directions at the same time for two different destinations. Then Paul, in verse 15, has an intriguing little line, a couple of thoughts here that seem to be just an added explanation. Here, I think, is what he's trying to get at here. The law brings wrath. So for all of the people who are thinking, if I obey the law, I get salvation at the end. If I'm good enough in what God lays down as the expectations, then I get salvation and Paul's point here is the law can't actually be salvific in itself. It simply is going to bring wrath. And he clarifies that every man's condemnation comes through inability to keep the law. And we can see this. It's easier for us to see it who just believe all of this. But this is a powerful statement, an important statement to simply say, Anything you're trying to do by works of the law that you think will get you to heaven and bring you God's favor, what it's actually bringing you that you don't fully see yet, but you will one day on judgment day, is wrath. In other words, God doesn't curve grade on a curve. The law is pass, fail. And if it's not perfection, it's wrath, it's condemnation. Again, Boyce 
The law possesses nothing that can enable a person to meet its just demands. That is just not its job. Or as another person put it, the very standard you trust is the one that condemns you. So perhaps even Paul is thinking, if you think of Philippians 3, Paul is thinking of his own experience in this and how he thought fulfilling the law as a Pharisee was the answer. And it was then when he met Christ that he realized, I throw everything else that I thought was good before God out as rubbish. Now, the, the other intriguing line in here is, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Think is pressing at, without the law informing Abraham, because it was given way after his life, there still was a sense of right and wrong, but it didn't have a clear defining or uh, explaining of what a transgression was. It doesn't change the fact that Abraham still had to believe God and all of these almost seemingly impossible promises God was making him. So not having a law yet did not excuse him from being a transgressor of the law. And you and I know when we read Abraham's life story, there's many transgressions within it. But perhaps there wasn't as clear of an understanding for him because the law wasn't laid down. So the law shows what transgression is. We'll see that in Romans 7. He's simply saying here that even when there is no law, though it seems like there might not be transgressions, grace alone is still needed to remove God's condemnation for transgressions. Once God gave, God gave his law to the Jews, their inability to keep it perfectly should have been a big sign. We need the, the law is not the answer. We need something more. They should have seen their transgression. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 3.24, the law was a guardian until Christ came. But then it had to be replaced um, or shown that that was not the answer, but that faith was the means by which we would be justified. Instead of recognizing I cannot keep the law. Too many Jews determined which things of the law were most important and tried to keep those fastidiously, failing to recognize it wasn't perfection, it wasn't enough. So Paul continues here to try to open their eyes and free them from that prison. And now in verses 16 and 17, and we noted last week that grace is only mentioned one time in this chapter, and here it is in verse 16, right in the heart and the midst of things. But we're coming out of circumcision and law. We're going to flow into all of Abraham walking by faith. And here is just the crystallizing, clarifying statement Paul is making, that Abraham was justified by grace, that grace came through faith. Might be helpful here for you to note, James Boyce speaks of three things this section teaches. I won't refer to him again. Establishes grace, makes salvation certain, opens the door of salvation to all. That's a very succinct way of noting three things faith is being used for to explain or teach in this section by Paul. So it begins verse 16 with, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest 
or be completely established on grace. God's grace comes to Jews. God's grace comes to Gentiles, not through the law or the lack of a law, but through faith. And God's promises come not based upon works, but on Christ's work in the gospel. So MacArthur notes, the crux of this passage is verse 16. Were it not for God's sovereign grace providing a way of salvation, even a person's faith could not save him. That is why faith is not simply another form of human works. The power of salvation or justification is in God's grace, not even ultimately in man's faith. Or, if you remember last week, Piper's thoughts, faith calls attention to grace. If you attempt to work for God to get right with God, you nullify grace. But faith has eyes for grace and grace alone. And then he goes on to add, and that promise to rest on and to be guaranteed to all of his offspring. I appreciate Piper's admonition here. Now meditate on this with me for a moment. Ponder this. Think about this for the good of your soul. Sink some roots down into this great statement. What is it that really at the bottom guarantees the promise that you will be an heir? The answer is God's grace. Your faith is essential, but the reason it's essential is that it's the only condition of the heart that accords with grace. And God's grace is the deepest foundation of our guarantee, our confidence, our assurance that all of his offspring can see. Donald Barthouse, putting it conversely, says it this way, the law is the womb of doubt. Why? Because you're never sure, have I kept it perfectly? Have I kept what I need to? What if I've done something wrong? Will my good outweigh my bad? Like all those things that keep us uncertain are erased when we put our faith in the promises of the grace of God given through his son and what his son does. In the gospel, there's no uncertainty because God's promises guarantee he will fulfill them beyond anything we can think of, ask for, or even imagine. He notes, not only to the adherent of the law, not only to somebody who may be circumcised, but also, or primarily to, or only to, the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Jew or Gentile, all who believe, all who have faith in God, in the provision of the Messiah for the way to be justified before God. And now verse 17, Paul is going to do what he often does, what Jesus himself did, because you can hear Jesus resounding with, as it is written, like you've read this before, and here Paul brings back up, and he's dwelling now, right now, on the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles being brought together um, by quoting uh, Genesis 17, 5. The line that I have made you the father, or the ESV 17, Genesis 17, 5 says, a multitude of nations, or of many nations. But just a, a brief note here again, for you and me, just like it said last week in verse 3 of chapter 4, to ask the question, well, that's all great logic, that's all great reasoning, that's great thinking, that sounds really good, but what does the scripture say? What is written in God's word? 
And now he points us to this particular line, and here's Piper's take on that. In short, justification by faith alone is a missionary doctrine of the first order. It's all about God's heart for the nations. Every kind of person is included in the gospel. Everybody you know, because faith is the most universally acceptable act of the human heart in every people and tribe and tongue and nation. Faith is not a performance based on education or personality or culture or ritual or strength or riches. It's what happens when the heart finds itself turning away from all those things and depending entirely, as we just sang about, on the mercy of God in Christ. And he closes out this thought, which is, again, still an introduction to the rest of the chapter. In the presence of God in whom he believed, so the promise and the walking out of faith in this is all in the presence of God. And then he notes, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things God the things that do not exist. Very intriguing couple of descriptions of God that Paul slides in here as he talks about God with greater clarity here at the conclusion of this thought. So it could refer to Abraham's faith that God would raise Isaac from the dead were he to obey God and slay his own son. More likely, I think, it refers to Abraham being considered, and this is wording from Hebrews 11, as good as dead when God made the promise to him that he would have a son and that that would lead to him being the father of all nations. In other words, God would take something, a, a human, an old man, who looks dead in terms of being able to create more life, and will call into existence a whole family of believers that at that point did not exist in this way. So, uh, and I, I think there's one other possibility here as well with what Paul's doing at the end of verse 17. And you just take your eyes down toward the end of the chapter. This could be in relation to the gospel as well. That God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, as verses 24 and 25 both speak of. So we'll unpack this as we work our way into the next section of Romans. It's exhilarating, encouraging for me, um, and we'll see really the first discussion of the importance of the resurrection of Christ for our justification. So here, we can at least say Abraham believed God, that he would father a son, that he would ultimately father a nation, I think far beyond what he gave in picture in his humanity, people from every nation, the spiritual children of God, all of the same faith that Abraham had. Which proves that God's promises, just as he fulfilled them in Abraham, will be guaranteed to be fulfilled for us in the gospel as well. A few closing thoughts, briefly and quickly. Kent Hughes, I thought, had a pithy, compact uh, good summary of what's been covered. Sola fide, faith alone, preceded the Jews, preceded the law, it's for everyone. And then a little bit later, it was sola fide for Abraham, for David, for the Gentiles, before, during, and after the law, it's always been faith alone. 
Let's go back to the three outline points that MacArthur helped us in thinking about this. First of all, from verses 9 to 12. Just as we learn there that Abraham was not justified by or because of circumcision, neither are we justified by any identifying act or mark or behavior or ceremony or ritual. From our baptism to our partaking of the Lord's Supper to our faithfulness in being a part of the church to a disciplined devotional life where we read the scriptures and pray to raising a good family, being a good citizen, being a kind person to any of the things that we might do for God. Nothing, good things, but nothing of them can improve the standing we are given before God in the righteousness of his son and our faith in him. Secondly, from verses 12 to 15, just as those verses teach us Abraham was not justified by or through the law, neither can we by or through trying to obey the commands of God or living a virtuous life be considered by God to be righteous. And third, just as verses 16 and 17 teach us Abraham was justified by and because of one thing, grace, so we also or can only be justified with God by one thing. The same thing as Abraham. Faith in God's grace being all sufficient for our justification and our salvation. God's grace that comes only through Jesus Christ, whom we'll note in the last part of chapter 4, and who opens up chapter 5, and we will see his life, his sacrifice, his death, and his resurrection in incredible glories. We just close asking, are you justified by the means in which Abraham, or Paul has just spoken of Abraham? Are you counting on some act, some behavior, some part of your life, some part of your obedience, your goodness? Or are you surrendering all of that and coming, asking for grace, asking for mercy that you do not deserve, you have not earned? Even as we just sang, Jesus your mercy is all my plea. I have no defense. My guilt runs too deep. The best of my works pierced your hands and your feet. Jesus, your mercy is all I need. How true that is, Lord, and how we come before you now. And I just pray for every soul in this room and everyone watching, perhaps listening, that you do a clarifying work if there are any here who are counting on their standing in position before you, on anything other than your grace, anything other than your son, anything other than faith in him, I pray you will convict them even now, make that clear to them, bring them to that point of surrendering it all in order to cling to Jesus wholeheartedly, fully, and to walk a life of faith as Abraham did. Please do that work for your glory's sake in this church, I pray. Amen.